On September 1st, 1985, Robert Ballard found the wreck of the RMS Titanic, 3,800 metres below the surface of the Atlantic Ocean, 73 years after her sinking, which claimed the lives of around 1,500 men, women and children. Not only was this an incredible moment in terms of finally finding the infamous ship, but it also answered one of the most pressing and controversial questions of Titanic sinking. The world could see, at long last, that the bow and stern of Titanic had indeed broken apart during her sinking. Many survivors of the disaster had testified to this during the inquiries into the sinking, as well as when talking to journalists, stating that they had watched as the ship's stern rose to a high angle until the mighty vessel tore herself apart. The exact logistics of the breakup had always varied, with some saying it was above the water, others saying below, some stating her bow rose out of the water, turning the ship into a V-shape as she broke, and others saying that she did not slip vertically beneath the waves. Rather, her broken-off stern rolled onto its side and corkscrewed out of sight. With so many conflicting and differing survivor testimonies and eyewitness accounts, it's easy to see why there was such disorientation and discussion. But why was there such debate and doubt in regards to whether or not the ship actually broke? Based on what survivors were saying in 1912, and in the years following the tragedy, it seemed highly likely to be the case that Titanic had broken apart during her final plunge. Even those who didn't see it break because it was too dark, or they weren't looking since they were busy rowing in the other direction, for example, said they heard almighty explosions, tearing of metal and splitting of wood. At the British Wreck Commission into the sinking, Chief Baker Charles Joffin, who was on the ship until the very end and was picked up from the water sometime later, had this to say. I went to the deck pantry and while I was in there, I thought I would take a drink of water. And while I was getting the drink of water, I heard a kind of a crash, as if something had buckled, as if part of the ship had buckled. And then I heard a rush overhead. You say that you heard the sound of buckling or crackling. Was it loud? Could anybody in the ship hear it? You could have heard it, but you did not really know what it was. It was not an explosion or anything like that. It was like as if the iron was parting. Like the breaking of metal. Yes. This quote from the Commission is particularly interesting, since almost everyone who was on the ship until the end died, and therefore a testimony from someone on the ship when it broke and finally went under is extremely rare. Because of this, we mostly have to rely on those who were struggling in the water, or those who were sitting in a lifeboat, some of which were at least half a mile away from the ship at the time that she broke. However, Joffin, despite being fairly intoxicated at the time, can in vivid detail Tell us what he experienced in the ship's final moments before her lights went out, whilst doing something as ordinary 
as getting a drink of water from the pantry. His testimony implies that the breakup perhaps began earlier than it appeared to those onlookers in the surrounding ocean and lifeboats. To a man that was on the ship before the lights went out, he heard what he described as iron parting, and that is extremely significant. It shows us that the breakup perhaps wasn't this surprise, spontaneous event that came out of nowhere. Rather, it was gradual and audible, and was something which culminated in a violent and destructive final act. Experts explained this away as the boilers breaking loose from their beds and sliding down the length of the ship, or by saying that every unfixed object, furniture, beds, tables, pianos, chairs, went tumbling and crashing down the slanted floors, smashing through walls and doors as they went. Whilst this definitely would have been a factor during the sinking, it didn't explain away the physical evidence floating in the ocean in the days, weeks and months after the sinking. An occupant of lifeboat number 6, Major Arthur Putchin, gave an account at the American inquiry into the sinking, stating that the ship had indeed been intact the last he saw it, but based upon what he heard in the darkness, and what he saw upon sunrise, he had his doubts. From what you saw, do you think the boat was intact, or had it broken in two? It was intact at that time. I feel sure that an explosion had taken place in the boat, because in passing the wreck the next morning, I was standing forward, looking to see if I could see any dead bodies, or any of my friends. And to my surprise, I saw the barber's pole floating. The barber's pole was on the sea deck, my recollection is, the barber shop. And that must have been a tremendous explosion to allow this pole to have broken from its fastenings and drift with the wood. As stated by Major Putchin, there was a barber shop on board Titanic, on sea deck, at the bottom of the ship's aft grand staircase. The aft grand staircase was located between the ship's third and fourth funnel, the same place where James Cameron's 1997 movie Titanic shows the ship break, and where the 1996 Titanic miniseries literally shows the aft grand staircase dome cover tearing apart and smashing. It is now known to not be entirely accurate, as we've learned that the ship actually broke between the second and third funnel. However, The aft grand staircase and barbershop are well within the most destroyed zones of the ship. Outside of the barbershop was a traditional and recognisable red and white striped barber's pole, and the morning after the sinking, this pole was seen by a survivor in the area where the ship went down, floating on the surface of the Atlantic. Now let's say, for argument's sake, that the pole came loose in the very latter part of the sinking. Ocean water rushed into the aft grand staircase. Then, the ornate dome above the staircase becomes submerged and smashes under the pressure, allowing a Niagara Falls to pour down into the room, thus creating an escape route for objects like the barber's pole to float upwards and out through the large circular hole left by the smashed dome. This is entirely possible. 
But the barber's pole was only one of many artefacts among the debris seen around the site of the sinking from as early as sunrise on April 15, 1912. Many other things found drifting are a lot more perplexing when trying to explain their departure from an allegedly intact ship. You know an airplane has crashed into the ocean after falling from the sky because there are suitcases and fuselage floating on the sea where it broke upon impact. The same was true for the sinking of Titanic. The piece of wood that Jack and Rose swim over to and Rose lays on, drifting in and out of consciousness as Jack quietly slips away beside her, is actually based on a real section of debris that was recovered from the site of the sinking. It's commonly referred to as a door, but it's actually a large panel of wall that would have arched above one of the doors in the first class lounge. Titanic's first class lounge was located midship on a deck. So how on earth would a large piece of wall from inside Titanic have been found afloat in the North Atlantic if the entire unbroken ship slipped elegantly into the depths that cold, dark morning? A barber pole coming loose and slipping out through an opening is one thing, but a section of wall. And the fact that we now know Titanic broke apart between the second and third funnel, otherwise known as midship, perfectly explains why Jack and Rose would have found this wall to lay on. And then there was the first class dining room chair that the cable ship Mackie Bennett recovered from the site a few days after the sinking when they were tasked with retrieving the bodies of those who had perished. Titanic's first class dining saloon was located on D-deck and stretched 114 feet through the middle of the ship. How had this chair managed to ascend four decks and exit the ship? Pieces of cork seen floating on the waves the morning of April 15, 1912 were reported by the crew of the SS Carpathia the ship which rescued Titanic survivors. They speculated that the cork had come from torn life belts. However, the amount of cork observed doesn't support that theory, and these pieces of cork would almost certainly have come from the Titanic's cold storage rooms. How else would this pulverised material have reached the surface, other than by exiting the exposed bowels of a destroyed ship? Aside from the physical evidence strewn across the ocean, like blood spatter left at the scene of a violent murder, there were countless passengers and crew who swore at both the US inquiry and the British Commission that they had not only heard what they perceived to be the ship breaking, but that they had witnessed it with their own two eyes. Despite the dark, moonless night, the visual of her large black outline against the starry sky and the pale shine from her propellers and funnels accenting her shape was enough for some keen observers to know what they had just witnessed. First class passenger Emily Ryerson in lifeboat number four was confident in her assertion that she watched Titanic split in half, saying, Then suddenly, the two forward funnels seemed to lean and then she seemed to break in half as if cut with a knife, and as the bow went under, the lights went out. The stern stood up for several minutes, 
black against the stars, and then that too plunged down, and there was no sound for what seemed like hours. Despite the overwhelming physical evidence, as well as the many eyewitness testimonies that claim the ship had broke, it's incredible that this was not believed, and that the exact opposite seemed to be true in the eyes of the assessors and those leading the inquiry and commission. In reading the countless testimonies, most of those asked about the sinking claimed to have seen it break, or claimed to have heard what could be described as the ship breaking. So why then were they more or less disregarded? Upon reading the American Inquiry and British Commission, one thing stands out quite plainly. Those who go on to speak about the sinking and the breakup of the Rhone Accord are allowed to do so, but there are very few follow-up questions. Those who claim with utmost certainty that the ship sank intact, such as 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller, are asked repeatedly how certain they are of that fact, driving the point home that the witness did not see the ship break. And those who are asked if they saw the ship sink, in reply with one-word answers or very little detail, are not pushed to provide clarity or information. The subject is swiftly changed. It appears as if the highest-ranking officers to have survived either saw the ship sink intact, like that of Lightoller, or didn't see the ship sink at all, in the case of 4th Officer Joseph Boxall. 3rd Officer Herbert Pittman was confident too that they had not seen such an event as the ship breaking occur, stating it did not, and that he certainly would have seen it if it had. But the lower-ranking crew aren't asked such pressing questions and are not asked to elaborate nearly as much as their senior officers. Would Titanic senior officers have had anything to gain in being selective with what they shared? Was their testimony entirely reliable? One could argue that helping your employer maintain an ounce of confidence among the public, even if it was just to defend the structural integrity of the ships they build, and help to dispel rumours of passenger vessels that break apart, would have been in their best interest if they wanted to keep their jobs and high-ranking positions. However, there is no evidence of intentional deception on their part, nor is there any proof of bribery or pressure from the White Star Line to conceal what might be perceived as the most shocking aspect of the ship sinking. When it comes to the testimony of Charles Lightoller, it is indeed a memorable and dramatic recounting of events. When the final plunge began, Lightoller dove headfirst into the ocean, knowing there was no more that could be done, as a sudden tide of water surged onto the boat deck. The canvas boat he'd been preparing was washed off of the deck in an overturned position. Before he could swim back to the collapsible boat, he was sucked towards and pinned against the metal grate of a vent as it went beneath the waterline like a spider in a drain. As the ocean was swallowed down through the opening, he was dragged down beneath the waves with the sinking ship, holding his breath, when suddenly a blast of hot air exploded from the vent. This sent him flying free and back up above the surface of the water. This happened to him not only once, but twice, as another vent further up the deck began to go under. Lightoller stated that he could not remember how he was freed from the second vent. However, 
It's likely that the water had entirely filled this part of the ship, and therefore the inward suction had ceased. When he was finally above the surface for a second time, Titanic's first funnel fell, creating a large wave which pushed the upside-down lifeboat clear of the ship. Then, in his own words, After the funnel fell, there was some little time elapsed. I do not know exactly what came or went, but the next thing I remember, I was alongside this collapsible boat again, and there were about half a dozen standing on it. I climbed on it, and then turned my attention to the ship. The third, if not the second funnel, was still visible. Certainly the third funnel was still visible. The stern was then clear of the water. And the propellers all visible? Yes, clear of the water. That is my impression. When you say the third funnel was visible, I understand you to mean part of it. Yes, some part of the funnel. As a matter of fact, I am rather under the impression that the whole of the third funnel was visible. It seems to me the ship would be almost perpendicular. She did eventually attain the absolutely perpendicular. Did you continue watching the afterpart sufficiently to be able to tell us whether the afterpart settled on the water at all? It did not settle on the water. You are confident it did not. Perfectly certain. I have heard that over and over again. That you say is not true. That is not true, my lord. I was watching her keenly the whole time. I had a difficulty in realising how it could possibly be that the after part of the ship righted itself for a moment. This final statement from the Commissioner is crucial. The Commissioner himself, who should be impartial, not express any bias or opinion, has outwardly expressed his own personal disbelief and doubt against those who have explicitly said they watched the ship break in half, or at the very least, witnessed the stern settle back on an even keel momentarily before disappearing beneath the waves. This personal opinion from the Commissioner in itself is vital in explaining why the final verdict from the inquiry into Titanic sinking is that she sank in one piece. Not because it didn't happen, because as we know, it did, but because there was a fundamental misunderstanding and unwillingness to understand how and why a large passenger liner like Titanic would break apart when sinking. A ship as large as Titanic had never sank before. She was the largest ship ever built. The only ship close to being her length was her older sister, RMS Olympic. The laws of physics and the amount of strain on the vessel structure during the sinking had never been experienced before, and the idea of a ship not only sinking but breaking in half seemed an absurd and unbelievable notion, so much so that a commissioner would say exactly that in the middle of an inquiry. When we listen to Lightoller's testimony, it's clear to see that this is most likely what inspired depictions of Titanic sinking in cinema. Sinking intact, reaching an almost vertical angle, and slipping down beneath the surface in a neat and elegant fashion. Certainly, it conjures up images of the 1958 movie, A Night to Remember, based on Walter Lord's 1955 book of the same name. The film stars Kenneth Moore, who is the top build star of the production on theatrical posters, as Charles Lightoller, who is very much the film's main character. Five years earlier, a 1953 film, simply called Titanic, 
did perhaps imply that the ship had broken, or at the very least exploded in her final plunge. However, it is not outrightly shown, and the ship disappears from sight in the same manner as a night to remember. But is Lightoller's testimony completely reliable? To his credit, Lightoller was not only fighting for survival, as the sinking ship seemed to be trying to take him down with it, but he continued to fulfil his duty as second officer, commanding the overturned lifeboat through the morning until Carpathia arrived. He taught those with him to shift their body weight with the swell of the ocean, to prevent them from being overtaken by the ocean's currents. It takes an incredible amount of courage, professionalism, and either luck or divine intervention to have not only survived, but to have gotten the passengers under your care on board the overturned collapsible to safety. However, with so much to have endured, and the focus and concentration that one would have to have, when soaking wet, to maintain your balance on the bottom of an overturned lifeboat without accidentally slipping off, it's incredible that he still found the time to concentrate his full attention on the sinking vessel behind him. As he himself said, I was watching her keenly the whole time. And Lightoller was pulled down by not one, but two of Titanic's large vents. He spent a considerable amount of time being dragged under the dark water and fighting to free himself, not to mention the commotion of those struggling in the water all around him, the lucky ones managing to climb on top of the collapsible boat, and a near miss with the collapsing funnel. It's incredible to imagine that Lightoller had any time for anything else other than swimming and trying to stay alive. But it's not just Lightoller's testimony that could be viewed as unreliable. Any eyewitness account under such emotional, catastrophic and traumatising circumstances could and should absolutely be viewed with a sympathetic yet critical eye when trying to discern what really happened. When it comes to the breakup, these people were witnessing something that no one had ever witnessed before and that they themselves could never have imagined witnessing. How do you put into words or rationalise something that seems completely unfathomable and illogical? Not to mention how completely dark it would have been after the ship's electricity went out. Some survivors described what could be viewed as the breakup, whilst not specifically stating that the ship broke. It's unclear whether this is because they didn't see it, or because they didn't quite understand what was happening amidst the chaos and darkness. One of Titanic's cooks, John Collins, who was on top of the collapsible boat with Lightoller, stated at the American Inquiry, When you were in the water, after you came up above the surface of the water, you saw the lights on the Titanic. Just as I came up to the surface, sir, her bow was in the water. She'd not exploded then. Her bow was in the water, and I just looked around and saw the lights. Had she broken in two? Her bow was in the water and her stern was up, but you did not see any break. You did not think she had parted and broken in two. Her bow was in the water. She exploded in the water. She exploded once in the water and her stern end was up out of the water, and with the explosion out of the water it blew her stern up. You saw it while it was up? Yes sir, saw her stern up. How long? I am sure it floated for at least a minute. The lights were still burning? No sir, the lights was out. How could you see it? 
I was on the collapsible boat at the time. If it was dark, how could you see? We were not too far off. I saw the white of the funnel. Then she turned over again and down she went. Is it possible that this explosion, described by John Collins, was the ship breaking apart? And is it then possible that this explosion was the blast of hot air that pushed Lightoller free from the vent the first time around? If so, it would mean that Lightoller was in no position to have viewed the breakup since he was underwater, and at that time, Collins was one of the first people to have climbed on top of the collapsible boat, giving him a better viewpoint, as well as more time to have witnessed the actual sinking of the ship. It seems that Collins was in a position to observe Titanic much more keenly than Lightoller, and yet Lightoller's account was tricked with more credibility. Ultimately, when it comes to the survivor testimonies, it sadly seems that those asking the questions at the inquiries believed the accounts that they wanted to believe and were more dismissive of others. Also, it appears to be Titanic's most senior surviving officers who are seen as the most trustworthy and credible witnesses, all of whom state that if they saw the ship sink, it absolutely sank intact. But would there have been a reason for this unconscious and, at times, openly vocal bias in favour of this version of events from the assessors of the American Inquiry and British Wreck Commission? The British Wreck Commission began on the 2nd of May 1912 and was initiated on behalf of the British Board of Trade, the very same British Board of Trade who were responsible for maritime regulations and whose inspectors had deemed Titanic seaworthy before her maiden voyage. Hardly surprising then that the British Board of Trade was not condemned and was found of no wrongdoing. Their final report simply stated that the tragedy had been the result of excessive speed in icy waters, but that Captain Smith and his crew had not been at fault, since this was common practice, and in the previous decade before the sinking of Titanic, three and a half million people had travelled by sea across the Atlantic, and there had only been ten lives lost. In later years, Charles Lightoller himself said in his published memoirs, A washing of dirty linen would help no one. The Board of Trade had passed that ship as, in all respects, fit for the sea. Now, the Board of Trade was holding an inquiry into the loss of that ship. Hence, the whitewash brush. Clearly, the British Board of Trade had a self-serving interest throughout the proceedings. It was bad enough that they were having to investigate the sinking of one of their own ships, a ship they had deemed safe and sound, and had been christened by the media as unsinkable. It's easy to see why, then, they would be apprehensive about accepting the evidence of the ship breaking apart and admitting that Titanic had not only sank, claiming 1,500 lives, but that the ship had broke apart in the process. Such an admission would have added insult to injury, and with this insight, it's clear to see why the assessors of the British Commission seemed reluctant to discuss the many reports of Titanic breaking in half, and if anything, seemed eager to invalidate them. The American inquiry began on the 19th of April 1912, the day after Carpathia had dropped off the survivors in New York, and only four days after the sinking itself. 
The final report from the American Inquiry was extremely critical of the British Board of Trade, claiming The lack of lifeboats was the fault of the British Board of Trade, to whose lax state of regulation and hasty inspection the world is largely indebted for this awful tragedy. And an awful tragedy it was. It's thanks to the Commission and inquiry that mistakes, oversights and complacency were seen as absolutely a factor and regulations were subsequently changed to prevent such a thing from ever happening again. Travelling by ship became much safer, or rather, the chances of surviving were far greater, as a direct result of the Titanic sinking. But the willful disregard of physical evidence and survivors who claim Titanic did indeed break in half is plain to see. And as Lytoller stated, the conflict of interest when it came to the British Board of Trade was blatant. Admitting such a thing could have potentially been a fatal blow to an already wounded White Star Line in the court of public opinion. The Board of Trade had absolutely nothing to gain, and potentially everything to lose, if they admitted fault, opening the door to countless lawsuits and damage claims from survivors and the families left behind of the 1500 who perished. In reality, Admitting defeat and accepting that the ship had most likely broken half wouldn't have changed much, and perhaps the British Board of Trade genuinely didn't believe the ship could have broken half. But including it in their findings would have been the respectful thing to do for the survivors, and for the unfortunate souls who were on the ship and in the water when it happened. In the 1980 movie, Raise the Titanic, we see the ship emerging from the Atlantic Ocean in one piece, nearly perfectly preserved, apart from a missing second funnel. This visual of Titanic, rising triumphantly and intact, shows how the public and media still thought of Titanic, a mere five years before she was finally discovered, as the black and white ship they had watched slip beneath the waves in 1953 and 1958. Even the 1979 made-for-TV movie SOS Titanic simply reused the sinking model footage from a night to remember, colorizing it for a more modern depiction. It was the accepted narrative that Titanic had sank in one piece. The first thing Robert Ballard and his team spotted on the 1st of September 1985 was one of Titanic's large boilers, which he recognized instantly from a 1911 photograph he had of these very same boilers. The boilers, which some survivors claimed in 1912, they had seen slipping out of the detached bowels of the stern as she fell back level. And here they lay, two and a half miles down on the sea floor. At that moment, before the wreck of Titanic herself had even been spotted, it was apparent that the ship must have broken up, for such a large item to have exited her. The truth was now known, and those survivors still alive in 1985 to witness the discovery of RMS Titanic's wreck had their accounts supported by the cold, hard facts. But the most important aspect of Titanic's legacy was perhaps best represented by the many pairs of leather shoes found lying side by side all over the wreck site and surrounding debris field. The debating was over. The important thing then 
and forever is to remember all those who were lost.